I have an experience in mind today that I think you've had. I know certainly I've had, and it's not one that I think any of us look forward to. And it's the experience of starting over. Last year, I was in the middle of a, a Saturday, and I turned to my friend and I said, hey, I think we need to start over. This particular Saturday was the day that we were celebrating my twins' birthday. They're born in August, and so we were having a birthday party for them, and they'd gotten um, some really big gifts from family. Family got together and decided to pool their resources, and so um, we have boy-girl twins, and so my son loves, loves Legos. And so he was given this giant 1,023-piece Lego set, massive. Um, And it said uh, for ages 10 and up, he was turning eight. That should have been the first sign that we had a problem. Uh, But uh, so he, in his room, with the help of some people who were up to visit us, he started building this. And I would have been in there, but my daughter also got a huge gift from family who pooled resources. She'd been asking for a dollhouse. And so she got this dollhouse that turned out to be taller than her. Um, So it's about five feet tall. And so I was in her bedroom spending four hours assembling this dollhouse with my dad um, while people were in my my son's room trying to assemble this. And at a certain point from the other room, they'd say, hey, Scott, can you come in here? I think we need some help. And I got in there and I realized, and they they were telling me that something had gotten misassembled. Like somewhere along the way, there was a piece that had gotten put in the wrong spot. And they had been spending the last 30 minutes trying to figure out, like, how to fix it. And so I, I kind of dug in and left the other, you know, project to somebody else to finish. And so we kind of dug in, and we, we said at a certain point, like, I don't think we're going to be able to fix this. I think we're going to have to start over. And my son was devastated because he wanted to play with his brand new Mandalorian Razor Crest. But we said, hey, we're going to have to start over. And so we took apart, piece by piece, the entire thing and tore it apart. Now, the good news is, seven hours and three weeks later, you know, (laughs) this thing finally got assembled. Um, But in the meantime, it was super discouraging for a second because we had to take all of that hard work. We had to tear it all down just because something had got put in the wrong place. And I don't know about you, but I tried every other option before I embraced the start over option because you have to give up all this work and it's going to take more time. Now, the reason I I bring up that story is I've been saving that box for a sermon for about nine months and I knew eventually it was going to come in handy and so finally it did. But also we're in this series called Leaving Egypt and we're talking about how do we find freedom on the road to Easter and some of you... You, you know what your Egypt is, and you're in the middle of it right now. I've heard from you that over the last couple of weeks, you've gotten clarity on that. Others of you are like, Scott, I don't think I have an Egypt right now. And that's okay. Like, you don't need to manufacture one. If you're not there, I'm super excited for you because it's, it's not a place that you like being when you're there. But my hunch is that you may have had one in the past. And if you have, then you know what it's like to leave that time and start over, to, to go, hey, I got to move beyond that, put that in the past, and start over. And, and so whether it's a, an Egypt you're in today or an Egypt you've been in the past, starting over is at the core of what we're going to talk today. The message is titled, How to Start Over. And the reason that we're going there is this big idea. 
What helped you to survive in the past may keep you from being able to thrive in the future. This is why you have to start over. Because sometimes, whether Egypt is a, a present experience or a past experience, when we're in Egypt, we develop coping mechanisms. We developed ways of surviving. And, and often those things are what get us through Egypt, really hard seasons. But many times I've discovered in my life and in the lives of people that I love, that the things that help you to survive often get in the way of actually helping you to thrive. And you have to kind of jettison those ways of living and start over with new and more healthy ways. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at four ways we start over after leaving Egypt. And for some of you, this is like where you're at today. You're going to apply it this afternoon. Others of you, it's going to help you to look on where you've been in the past and kind of make sure that you're living healthy in the present. And for others of you, I'd encourage you just to stash this in your pocket because you may need this in the future. As we we jump into the scriptures today, we're going to go back to a text we were in last week, Exodus chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it today. If, If you don't have a Bible, please stop out at the connection table. We would love to give you one before you leave today and encourage you to bring it every week. But Exodus chapter 6 is the text that we're going to jump back in today. And as I mentioned last week, we were here, but I want us to start in a different place and a, a kind of a different lens on this text. Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8, and Kelly will keep us kind of going with the slides here. Here's what, what God says to Moses. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The first way that we start over when we leave Egypt and we see the people of Israel doing this is, one, we build trust in God's character. We build trust in God's character. We start over by by beginning to trust or rebuild trust in God's character. Now, Now, for some of us, trust is like the hardest thing for us. You may say, I don't trust people. I trust myself. Maybe I trust God, but I don't, I don't trust well. And, and that was where the people of Israel were because, because they had been in Egypt and it had been a bit of a flip-flop where the rug got pulled out from under them. When they went to Egypt, the Pharaoh was super excited to have them. He gave them the best land. He told them to go and, and take care of their herds of sheep there. And he even appointed some of the people to be over his herds. And, and they were kind of like the most favored people. But, but when that pharaoh died and another pharaoh came to life, we covered this in week one, th- things changed. And so that pharaoh began to be threatened by them, and he began to oppress them. And that's what led to them crying out to God. And so when it comes to authority figures, the people of Israel kind of have trust issues. Some of you may relate to this, that you have a hard time trusting me as an authority figure. Because maybe you were in a church where there was a pastor who was a shady person. 
who did bad and unhealthy and toxic things. And so you have a hard time, not because of anything I've done, but because I hold a role that somebody else did. And the people of Israel have to begin to not only start trusting Moses as a leader, they have to start trusting God to lead them. We'll see later in this series that God led them through the desert with a a pillar of fire by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And they have to begin to trust God. And so when God says in Exodus 6, this is what I'm going to do for you, initially, if you read on, they don't receive it. They don't trust it. Trust is hard for them. Then as they go into the wilderness, they have to start trusting Moses. And at one point, they even say, hey, Moses, talk to us, but don't have God talk to us. We can handle talking to you. You go talk to God and then tell us what he says because we're afraid of him. We're, we're not ready to go there yet. And some of you, if you've been through a season that's an Egypt experience, that was hard, that was difficult, that was painful or unhealthy or even toxic, your place where you are now may just be you beginning to build trust in God Because maybe God didn't answer your prayers when or how you wanted him to. Maybe God didn't do what you wanted when you wanted him to. And so as a result, it's hard for you to trust him and start over. Whenever I I go out for coffee, and I often kind of work in coffee shops because it's easier to not get interrupted there, you know? You have your headphones in and you have your hat down. People typically kind of let you kind of do your own thing. And I'll watch people have conversations because I just love studying people. I grew up in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is the best city to people watch in the whole entire world. You see so many fascinating things. Um, you see some horrifying things too, but fascinating things as well. <laughs> but I kind of, I love watching people and sometimes watch people have a conversation and, and you can kind of watch them like slowly, intentionally, cautiously opening up. You know, giving people a little bit of material and then seeing what they do with it. Because the hard part about trust is the only way to know if you can trust someone is to trust them. Right? Like, you ha- you, how do I know if I, tr- if I can trust you? I don't know. I'm going to give you this and see what you do with it. And, and, and as some of us go through that process of trusting, I want to give you an image of what you look like, what I look like. Have you ever watched a small baby deer stand up? You know, the, the, legs, the legs are really wobbly, and it almost falls over, and, you know, it's, it's really cute, but you're like, man, it's kind of struggling to stand. Some of us, that's the image you need to take, that that's actually where you are with God. You're kind of wobbly. You're struggling to, to trust Him, because trusting God is the foundation of everything with God. If, if you don't trust a person— You're not going to get in a car with them and go somewhere. You're not going to open up and share anything with them. You're not going to lean and depend on them. And the same thing happens with God. And that's what happens with the people of Israel as they step out in freedom, is they're discovering, hey, we're going to have to learn to trust God in a way we never have before. This is essentially what theologian Nicholas Berdeyev says. He says, it would be a mistake to think that the average person loves freedom. A still greater mistake would be to suppose that freedom is an easy thing. He said freedom is a difficult thing. As the people of Israel move into freedom, it's difficult because they have to learn to trust God in a way they never have before. 
not just trying to survive, but trying to thrive. And what we're going to see with them is that what helped them to survive in the past may actually keep them from being able to thrive in the future. They eventually make it out of, of Egypt. We saw a little bit of that story last week. He delivers them from Pharaoh. And then the people of Israel take a journey between Exodus 6 and Exodus 19, and they arrive at the mountain of Sinai. So if your Bible's still open, turn to Exodus chapter 19. The people have arrived at, at Mount Sinai, and the Lord calls Moses up to the mountain, and he speaks to him. And he says in verse 4, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how he delivered them through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea collapsed on them. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenants, then you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. The second way that we start over, and we're going to follow the pattern of the people of Israel, is that we replace our old identity with our new God-given identity. What God is doing with the people is he's not just saying, hey, I'm inviting you to trust me in another way, a way you never have before. He's saying, I'm going to invite you to see yourself in a way you never have before because I'm going to give you a new identity. And if your Bible is still open, in Exodus 19, in, in verse 5, there's a phrase there that's uh, my, my own possession, my only possession, or my treasured possession, depending on your translation. The Hebrew word there is the word segula. Can you say it with me? Segula. So if in your Bible you see that phrase, you know, one possession, only possession, or treasure possession, just circle that or highlight that. That's a hugely significant word. Because what it means is that this, this possession or property or people are valued in a way that's unique compared to everything else. And so God is saying to the people, hey, beginning now... You are mine in the way that no one else is mine. Who you are is unique among all the peoples of the earth. And he will build on this, God will, throughout the people's journey to the promised land. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, For you are a holy people, it's Segula again, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession, again, Segula, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. God's saying to them, hey, I don't know how you saw yourself in captivity, but now that you're in freedom, you need to know this is who I say you are. You are mine. I declare your worth and value and holiness, and I'm calling you into this new identity. And, and what God is doing in some ways is saying, hey, your story didn't start in Egypt. Your story began in Eden. I created you in my image. I, I made you like me. And now I'm freeing you from captivity and we're starting over. And this is why so much of the story on the surface may seem hard and gritty and difficult and negative, but it's beautiful and good. A God who loves his people so much to free them and then declare over them, this is who you are. And yet, one of the things we're going to see is the people spend a not short time at Sinai. 
And the reason they're there for a while is that they needed time for this new identity and this new covenant to soak in. You know, we're really good from a very young age at thinking we can learn and absorb things quickly. I've got little kids, and often they'll say, Dad, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. And I know they don't. I know they haven't learned it yet. I know they haven't absorbed it. They may have heard me say it, and they may want me to stop talking, but they don't really have it yet. And, and the next hour or the next day or the next week will play that out. I think we do the same thing with God all the time. God, got it, yep, yep, got it, thank you. Moving on, nope, got it, heard you, heard you. But how many times do we think something has really soaked in and it's only just gotten to the surface? Identity is not something that you learn like you do someone's phone number. Like you do how to get from one place to another with directions. Identity is a soul thing. And it doesn't absorb quickly. It has to be repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated it has to be reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed. And, and if you've been operating out of an old, not helpful identity, replacing that and, and grabbing a hold of a new one is not something that you will finish by the end of this month or maybe the end of this season or maybe even in this year. I love how Henry Nouwen talks about this. He says, every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It's like discovering a well in the desert. Once you have touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper. And so what it means to start over is it means that we begin to hear who God says we are, and we have to hear it over and over and over and over. This is why in Deuteronomy, the people talked about putting God's law on their foreheads. This is the reason why, why David in Psalm 19 says that, that I meditate on your words, and he's using a word image like a cow that eats food and continues to chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it. That's what we are to do with the words of God about who we are, because just a heads up, everybody has an opinion about who you are. And you're bombarded with it every day through your television, your computer, your iPad, your, your friends, your coworkers, your boss. And if you don't allow God's voice to become the loudest one, you will never fully embrace who he says you are. And that's why the people spend a long time at Sinai. Because they need to hear, you are my treasured possession. You are my segula. And that needs to sink into their hearts. Well, after they hear that, in the very next chapter, if your Bible's still open, go to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 begins this way. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. The third way that we start over is that we learn new practices which help us live out our new identity. It's not enough to hear that, that we are God's treasured possession. We need to begin to develop practices and ways of living that continue to affirm that new identity. 
Because the, the way that God designed us as humans is that what we do flows out of who we are. The way you see yourself, whether you're honest or not about that, it shows up in everything you do. This is why often you can see in someone else their insecurity more than you can see it in yourself because you see it in their practices and their activities. And so what God is doing here is he said, hey, Exodus 19, you were my treasured possession. Now in Exodus 20, I'm going to give you a set of practices that help reaffirm that. And we call those practices the Ten Commandments. The first one was right there. You shall have no other gods before me. And it's not like before, like in the southwest line, if you're in A and then B and then C. It's the word before means literally in front of me, like in my face, where I can see. Where can God not see? Nowhere. So nowhere are we to have a God before God. And then the other nine continue from there. And these commandments over time in our world has, have begun to, see, to seem like, for many people, these kind of ancient rules, these kind of buzzkill, like, you know, legalistic things. But for the people of Israel, when God gave them to them, they were, they were like a new pair of glasses. They were a way to help them see the world and see themselves and begin to live out this new identity. And he gave them these practices because they had never been free before. Most of these people had lived their whole life in captivity where they made no choices. What are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? What are you going to do? How are you going to spend your time? If you've ever met anybody who's come out of a long stint in prison, you know that freedom is often difficult for them because they've literally never had all of the choice they have before. And so God gives them the, the law and the commandments to help guide them. And, and one image you could use for this is training wheels. A few years ago, my kids uh, had bikes. We had training wheels. And we'd reached a point where I realized I was beginning to fail as a dad. Because my kids couldn't ride their bikes without training wheels. And I felt terrible. Like, I have failed as a father. And it doesn't help that I work with Pastor Josh. I mean, Pastor Josh is like an amazing bike wizard. He has his own biking YouTube channel. I feel like his kids came out of the womb riding bikes and doing jumps. I mean, I just felt so, so miserable compared to him. So finally, one day, I humbled myself. I said, Josh, can I buy you coffee? I went to have coffee. I said, Josh, I need help. I need to get my kids off the training wheels. And so Josh gave me some coaching. He was very kind, not judging. And he gave me some, some tips, and then he invited me over to his house. And when, within two weeks, my kids were off the training wheels. I mean, it was a miracle right there with parting the Red Sea and walking on water. I mean, my kids, they were off. The, I mean, it was because I just didn't think it was ever going to happen. And, and one thing Josh said to me that was fascinating is he said, at a certain point, training wheels do more harm than good. They actually make biking more dangerous. And that's in essence what God designed the commandments to be. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, before this faith came in Jesus, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian, think training wheels, until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. 
But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So for the people then, they were given the law intentionally to help them. But over time, the way they saw the law changed to be different than God intended. You see, the Ten Commandments weren't meant to be restricting. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. For the people then, the law was designed to empower their flourishing, to help them live in freedom in a way that was good and full. And I just want to tell you, so many people view the Ten Commandments and the law as negative. You can do that, but to do that, you have to disagree with Jesus. Because here's what Jesus himself said when he came. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He doesn't come and say, hey, tear up the Ten Commandments. Those aren't useful anymore. He comes to fulfill what they were supposed to be for. They were for a season to lead up to him. Chuck DeGroat's an author that has really helped me in this series. He, he has a book that kind of confirmed for me the title of this series. It's called Leaving Egypt, and that's where we got the title of the series from. And here's what Chuck says. He said, I'm convinced that finding God in the wilderness requires us to see God's law as a life-giving guide for living out our new identity as God's covenant, not a life-sucking burden. And some of you, if you've come out of a season of Egypt, what you need is structure. You need laws. You need, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and you need boundaries. Just as a child needs boundaries to begin to grow up well, some of us need boundaries too. We don't like boundaries because we're adults. We tend to be arrogant, self-sufficient. We tend to have a better idea of our own abilities than we actually do. But what we see then and we see now is that we need practices that help us to live out our identity. And those practices on the outside may seem restricting, but from God's perspective, they're for our flourishing. Here's the last thing I want to point out from this passage as we start over. Exodus 19 says, In the third month, from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim. They came to the Sinai wilderness and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. So again, this is before they they go and they get the Ten Commandments and they hear that they're the treasured possession. This is what this passage means. Number four. We do the hard work of healing wounds. When we start over, we start doing the hard work of healing wounds. One of the hard parts about getting injured, having surgery, experiencing a relational wound, is you get hurt like that. You break, you fall, you break a bone, you know, you, you fall asleep and you wake up and you have all these stitches all over you. Somebody you trusted in an instant you realize is untrustworthy. And, and you can get hurt like that, but how do you heal? Not like that. No, healing doesn't have a clock nor a calendar. This is why the worst thing you can say to somebody who's going through grief or healing is, oh, You're not over that yet? 
No, I'm not. Thank you very much. Because healing doesn't work like that. Some of you who've lost multiple people in your life even know this, that every time you go through grief, it's different. Every time your body is injured, it's different. And so with healing, there's a lot of work and there's patience required. And so if you've been through in Egypt, you need to know that you're not going to be through with the healing work just as quickly as you're out of it. Here's what I learned this week, and this is something I'd never, I'd never known before. This was like an aha for me, so I'm just sharing this with you. I discovered this week just how long the people of Israel were at Mount Sinai. If you go to the next book in the Bible, like you actually jump Exodus, and then you go to Leviticus, and you go to Numbers. In Numbers 10, you see how they left Sinai. It says, during the second year, in the second month, of the 20th day of the month, the cloud was lifted up above the tabernacle of testimony. And the Israelites traveled on from the wilderness of Sinai, moving from one place to the next until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time according to the Lord's command through Moses. They came in the second month and they left in the second month. Translation, the people spent nearly a year at Sinai. A year! Why were they there so long? Though they were out of Egypt, they weren't done healing from Egypt. They were actually not even done when they left Sinai, if you know the rest of the story. There's still lots of issues, and we'll cover more of that next week. But they spent nearly a year there because they had to hear and receive and process and own and take hold of things, and they didn't do that quickly. Theologian Stephen Dempster says Sinai, not Egypt, is Israel's biggest roadblock to Canaan. For a lot of us, Sinai is our biggest obstacle because we forget just how long it takes to heal, just how long it takes to change, just how long it takes to process and work through. And one of the things I've learned about healing in my own journey is healing is as much about unlearning as it is about relearning. If you grew up in a family of origin that was dysfunctional, that was unhealthy, you didn't feel safe there, you were yelled at or abused, you weren't taught how to process all the emotions God gave you, and then you went out and you started your own family, you realize that you had to unlearn the stuff from your own family if you were going to have a healthy new family. If you worked for a a terrible boss in a really unhealthy organization, and then you got dropped by God's grace in a much healthier organization, that organization and your boss probably tell you, hey, that may be how you did it there, but that isn't how we do it here. you got to unlearn. And most of us as adults... The longer we go, the less we like learning things that are new, much less unlearning things that have been part of us for a long time. And if you've been in Egypt, I just want to remind you that you may actually have as much to unlearn as you do to learn. The things that helped you to survive may be obstacles to what God wants to do to help you to thrive. 
And here I just want to say a special word to those of you who are survivors. I'm not a fan of the word victim. I think victim puts us in the wrong mindset and it takes away all of the power and agency we have. Some of you are survivors. Maybe it was your family. Maybe it was your marriage. Maybe it was a friendship. You got through it. You survived. It's amazing. Some of you ask yourself sometimes, how did I get through that? How did I survive that? It's amazing that you're still here. You are incredibly strong. You are incredibly resourceful. But because of what you survived, you have a well-worn path that you know how to walk really easily. You know how to survive, how to take care of yourself, trust no one else but yourself. But what if now that you're out of that place, God wants you to blaze a new path? to let go of that old way and learn from him a new way. To stop just surviving and start to help you thrive. I know that's scary to let go of those coping mechanisms and those survival techniques. But you don't want to just be living like an Egyptian when you're no longer in. And while you're waiting at Sinai and you're wondering, when am I ever going to get to leave and go on to the promised land? I just want to encourage you that they were waiting, but God was working. They were at Sinai for a year. But if you read what happens in the rest of Exodus and then Leviticus, Leviticus is hard, I'll just warn you. And then you read the first 10 chapters of Numbers. What you see is they were there waiting for a year, but they weren't just twiddling their thumbs. God was doing all of this work. And often we feel like, well, I'm just waiting, therefore nothing's happening. No. No. While you wait, God is always at work. He's always at work. Often in ways that you can't see and you can't comprehend. So while you're waiting, what do you do? If you're at Sinai, what do you do? Well, I've got two next steps that I want to encourage you to take today. If you're in a place where you're like, hey, I'm out of Egypt, but I know I'm not where God wants me to be yet. Two things I'd encourage you with. One, I'd encourage you to identify two or three pieces of structure that you might need as you leave Egypt. I spent time when I was living in Phoenix, and I had a great friend, he was a golf buddy, and he had lost his job because of his addiction to pornography. He literally was so addicted, he looked at it at work. And he lost his job. And it had been years since then. But he so did not want to end back, end up back in that Egypt that he'd put up structure around him. I made fun of him because he had a flip phone. He had a dumb phone. Because you can't get the internet on that. He didn't have his own computer at work. And if he ever had to, it was in a public place where everybody could see it. He didn't have a computer at home. He'd put up all these pieces of structure around himself. Why? Because he was a really sick, twisted, you know, individual? No. Because God had freed him and he didn't want to go back. And so, friends, boundaries are a gift, not a curse. 
If you want to live in freedom, boundaries could be some of the best things you ever embrace, give yourself, or God gives you. And it might be a reminder, hey, I want this so much that I'm willing for people to make fun of me. But at least I'll be free. The second thing I encourage you to consider is I'd encourage you to consider spending time claiming and developing your God-given identity through creating identity statements. If you're like, Scott, I, I don't even know who God says I am, then you're going to need to spend some time with that. And so what we've done for you this week is, if you go on our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash sermon hyphen resources, we've put together a, a multi-page PDF that walks you through how do you look through scripture and find out who is it that God says you are and how do you begin to put that in language that you can own for yourself. This is something that I've done for myself because I've battled insecurity on and off all throughout my adult life. And I had to come to a place where I could write out this is who God says I am and come back to it because you might be surprised but standing up on a platform on a live stream under lights, people have opinions about you. And sometimes they don't tell you, but they tell other people who then tell you. I was at the grocery store yesterday, and I ran into somebody, and they're like, hey, I heard this thing. And I'm like, first of all, why are you telling me? Because you went on to pick up your, you know, like carrots, and now I have to deal with those things. And so, you know, right, I came back to my identity statement. That person could be absolutely right. But their voice doesn't get more weight in my life than God's. And so I came back to some statements that I wrote years ago, and one of them is, the truest thing about me is what God says about me. It doesn't mean what they said is wrong. I'm not here to fight them over it. It just means it doesn't get as much weight as God does. And for some of you, that's going to mean you have to start taking some pieces apart. I told my son if I could use his, his box, I could show you his Lego. This is Maxwell with his Razor Crest Lego. This was seven years, seven, sorry, not seven years, seven weeks, seven weeks later when we finally finished it. And, and I just want to encourage you that we didn't build that by ourselves. Lots of people had, gave us help. And so if you're starting over, just final word, don't start over alone. Maxwell didn't tear it apart by himself and rebuild it by himself. He got help. I got help. If you didn't get into Egypt by yourself, you're not going to get out and live free by yourself. So get some help. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the hope that you give us that Egypt may be part of our past, but it doesn't have to be our future. We thank you that you declare over us the truest thing about us. For the Israelites, it was that they were your treasured possession, your segula. And for us, it's that we are beloved so much that you sent your son to earth that he might die on the cross and be raised from the dead that if we believe in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the truest thing about us. And so as we leave behind or seek to leave behind places that are unhealthy, we pray that we would hear the truth from you about us. We pray that you'd show us the, the path to walk, even if it's a narrower path than we've ever walked before. 
And we pray that you would do that work of healing in our own hearts and lives. It might not be quick, it might not be easy, but we thank you that you are a God who finishes before he starts. You don't leave us where you find us. You take us somewhere we can't even imagine. We pray that you do amazing, amazing work in our hearts as we long to celebrate Easter and your resurrection power.